When it comes to making a list of the world's greatest philosophers, I've always said that my favorite is Winnie the Pooh. Pooh once said, how lucky I am to have something that makes saying goodbye so hard. When today's guest, Bill Gilmore, last saw his niece, Jennifer Kessie, he didn't know that he would have to find a way to be able to say the very same thing. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. I'm so glad that you've joined me today for another compelling true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are just waiting for us. And if you're listening, I believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI, not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is Season 5, Episode 2. The book that I chose for this week is Aftermath of Jennifer Kessie's Abduction, An Uncle's Quest for Understanding and Inspiring Life Lessons. And I'm lucky enough that I was able to talk with this book's author, Bill Gilmore, Jennifer's uncle. We're going to check in with him after we investigate his compelling story. On Tuesday, January 24th, 2006, Bill Gilmore got a call from his sister telling him that his niece, Jennifer Kessie was missing. Two days later, the lives of every member of his family were changed forever when it became apparent that Jennifer hadn't just disappeared on her own. She'd been kidnapped. Bill wrote this book, incredibly, to share not just Jennifer's story, but how he was able to eventually regain joy. But first, let's talk about Jennifer. When she failed to show up for work on that Tuesday morning, Everybody who knew her immediately knew that something was wrong. Jennifer was just the type of person that would have called to let somebody know if she was even just going to be a little bit late. She'd spoken with her parents the night before, as well as some friends and her boyfriend. No one got any sense at all that Jennifer was upset or having any sort of problems. When no one could reach her on her phone and she wasn't at her condo on Conroy Road in Orlando, her parents notified the police. Two days later, her 2004 black Chevy Malibu was found about a mile from her home. CCTV footage recorded someone parking Jennifer's car before walking away. The video just isn't great quality at all, and a fence partially blocks this person from view. So that person has never been identified. Authorities looked at multiple persons of interest, including Jennifer's boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend, and a co-worker. Each of these men were cleared. The family even considered the remote possibility that Jennifer had been abducted by human traffickers. One interesting note is that Jennifer had mentioned to family members that she was being harassed by some of the construction workers who were working on an expansion of her condo complex. Police said that because many of these workers were non-English speakers, they weren't able to question them. That claim absolutely infuriates me as an investigator. Does it infuriate you too? Do you believe that in Orlando, Florida, the police had no officers who spoke fluent Spanish? Why couldn't they have utilized court interpreters? It's just really hard for me to imagine that there was no way at all to find someone who spoke any language represented among these workers. In 2010, the FBI stepped in. But today, we're no closer to finding Jennifer. 
The family actually had to sue the Orlando police in 2018 to get access to Jennifer's case file. And you've heard me talk about open cases versus closed cases and what authorities will share and what they won't. But despite all of these efforts on Jennifer's behalf, she remains missing. Jennifer's uncle, Bill Gilmore, has endured his own agony over the past nearly 18 years now. He wrote this book hoping that he could share the brokenness that he used as a catalyst to change the course of his outlook on life. Now he's here with us to share his heartbreaking story and invite you to emerge from suffering into joy through your family, your community, and God. Mill, I want to thank you so much for your time today and for sharing a very, very difficult family story. Lori, it's just an honor to be on your podcast. And so thank you for the opportunity to keep Jennifer's story in the forefront of your listeners and, uh, you know, in the world in general. Well, I know this first question is a tough one, but I think it helps people to get a better frame of reference. Those of us that have not experienced this personally, what was it like when you first heard Disbelief, number one, because you think, how does a 24-year-old go, go missing? Uh, and especially since we knew Jen, um, she was a person, you know, firstborn, but she was very self-aware, safety conscious. That was just part of her character to the point that uh, if she was leaving a mall or, or a business late at night, she would be on the phone talking to somebody until she got in the car safely. She was also very responsible. So if she was going to be late, she'd call and let you know. I mean, this wasn't just like, it, it wasn't something she did occasionally. It was just part of who she was. So that's why alarms went off immediately. She doesn't show up for work, for her a meeting, doesn't pick up on the cell phones, hadn't called anybody to tell them what was going on. Everybody knew from the minute that we heard uh, that something was wrong. Unfortunately for me, I was in the air. I was traveling to uh, New Jersey uh, on business and my sister and I played telephone tag. So I didn't find out till six o'clock that night. We lived the closest. We were about 20 minutes from Jen. So we were in Lake Mary. She was living in Orlando. Had I been there, I would have been down there, uh, you know, obviously much earlier. They had to drive over from the West Coast. When dealing with an adult, it's one thing. But I, I have said uh, to folks that all of us, most of us, have been in a situation either with our own children or maybe in the care of somebody else's child in a department store. And, and, and the child gets out of our sight momentarily, you know, uh, and that panic that sets in. So I think most folks listening to this are going to know what that feels like because they probably experienced it. The only difference is generally the child reappears relatively quickly, but it doesn't do away with that anxiety, that fear level, that adrenaline rush that you experience. So in our case, it's just that it's been prolonged. And it's been nearly 18 years now yes. since Jennifer went missing. And when it was reported to police, I, I was very disturbed as an investigator to hear that one of the first officers that responded to the apartment decided that she'd probably just had a fight with her boyfriend and she'd be back. And your, exactly. your family knew different. And so yeah. what, what did you do in the absence of more disciplined approach by law enforcement? Well, and that was the thing that I know very early on, we tried to get the people that we were talking to to understand, look, if it was just us saying it, we could understand that because they probably hear that all the time. But when the employer is telling you the same thing, there was a consistency in the messaging, which is this is not something Jen would have done. She's more responsible than that. But unfortunately, as you said, 
They weren't going to they weren't going to deviate from what the narrative was that they had believed happened. So my brother-in-law had worked for uh, Staples at the time. So all those things you just instinctively know to do get posters made. So by the time I flew back and got to the condo, he already had thousands of flyers posted. The small group that had gathered um, had begun to stand at corners and hand them out. And within really within the next 24 hours, we had actually begun to organize that street maps, having people go out looking for her car because that was missing, going door to door at businesses to put the posters up in the shop windows. And so we did everything concentrically from her condo and then worked out from there to try to keep the awareness up. And then thankfully, there was uh, media coverage, some. But the tipping point was when the tip line got the call from the woman who lived at Huntington on the Green Apartments, who said that, I think that car you're showing on the news is sitting in front of my building. And then everything changed. Uh, by the time the police arrived there, confirmed it was her car, came down to where Jen's, we, we were all at a Jen's condo and told us that her car had been found within, literally within probably a half an hour. Helicopters are flying overhead. Dog teams were brought out to canvas the wooded areas. So that's when everything accelerated, because now we have a situation where her car is found. Nothing of hers is in the car. I mean, you know, her pocketbook and that time. And so now I think they began to realize that something was amiss here. And then probably the most important thing is when they were able to get the surveillance of the security film from the apartment complex as, as poor the technology was in 2004 and how lucky for the individual who had dropped the car off that, you know, the way the camera angles picked him up, especially along the one fence, every other frame was blocking a, a complete view of, the, of his face or her face. But it was just interesting to all of us that when we had access to the to that uh, video, to see a person drive, the, put the car in, but not satisfied with the positioning. So backs it out, straightens it out, sits in the car for, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 seconds and then exits the car. Walking in, you know, in a direction towards what would have been, um, if I get my orientation right, uh, the Americana, Texas Avenue side. And on that side, there was a bus stop and across the street was also a shopping center. So that person would have been walking in that direction. And then after that, we don't know. Was somebody waiting for them? Did they get on a bus? You know, but, but they walked away from the car. And I think it's very important for people to understand how much it matters when people phone in tips. Yes, very important. If you hadn't found that car, you might not even have that video because it might have been recorded over. Exactly. So, and especially now, you know, we have ring cameras, we have a lot of people even have dash cams in their own cars. So if you have something like that, and you find out that something has happened where you might have captured something, make sure you turn that over to police. That's 100%. Because something that even might seem in- insignificant could be a piece of a puzzle. Exactly. And yeah. I was really struck when I was reading your book that after Jen had been gone for a year, you wrote a letter to your community that was published in the Orlando Sentinel. And what really grabbed my attention from that letter was how you talked about a question that gets asked a lot when tragedies like this occur. How did God allow this to happen? So I want you to tell everybody what your answer to that is. Well, the answer is that God does not. I mean, there's a a theological uh, answer, and that is that he is aware of everything. Right. So God is omniscient. uh, And so he knows everything. But there's the component of human free will. 
where we get to make choices. So he knows our beginning to our end. He, he knew us before the foundations of, of the world. And I think uh, David in Psalm 139 just spells it out so, so clearly that we were intricately crafted in our mother's womb. So there isn't anything he's not aware of. But that said, God is allowing humans to make their own decisions and to face the consequences of those decisions. And unfortunately, in cases like this, these weren't decisions that we made. These were decisions that somebody else made, but we're now dealing with the consequences. But we know that is true historically. We're living in that situation now, right? When you look at what's happening in, in, in the Israel-Hamas conflict, what's happening in Ukraine, people make decisions and millions of people pay. In a case of individual crime, like we're talking about with Jen, the family is suffering the consequences of somebody else's actions. So it, it took me a while to come to that, to the realization that, and it's a very difficult one because we really want answers and solutions. And, and many times they're, they're just mysteries. We're never going to understand the why of so I think we're better off leaning into things that we know to be undeniable, things that we know to be true, hopeful, and lean into that as opposed to the mysteries. Because if we focus on the mysteries and the unexplainable, it, to me, it would be like driving your car, but focusing on the rear view mirror and not looking out your windshield. You're looking in the past. You know, we can't undo anything from our past. We can prevent, you know, a future situation. Hopefully that's what we learned from the past. I think that's one reason it's so important when families like yours do share their stories, because you're allowing the rest of us to learn things from your experiences. And one of the things, unfortunately, that I think a lot of people are going to learn today is that you have to be your own best advocate in situations like this. And I'm not, I'm not completely trying to trash the police. I'm not. But in this particular case, Jen's parents had to actually sue the police for access to her case file. So even as your faith in God was growing and deepening, were you losing faith in the people that were supposed to protect your family and look for Jennifer? I think, you know, from my point of view, I, I realized that we're all the same in that regard, right? As long as we're in this world, we live in a fallen world. We don't like to talk about sin, but the Bible does talk about the sin and talks about the sinful nature. And it doesn't take much, right? If we think about when we were raising our own kids, most adults don't teach their kids to lie, but they instinctively do. So we can see from the earliest ages the, the, the mind spinning to create, right? Kids weren't taught that. It's innate. So let's just, we have to accept that that's a true thing. We have dumbed down that idea and call it mistakes, now, we all know that mistakes are really things that with the eraser, we can erase like a math problem or something like that. But when you have premeditated mistakes, when you plan a mistake, right, that, that raises to and rises to a completely different level. So I think we, we, we do a huge disservice to people who suffer at the hands of others by saying it's just a mistake or simply just saying, well, I'm sorry, like as if that somehow magically removes the consequences, that long-term psychological or physical issue that a person may have to deal with because of somebody else's actions. I think it's just recognizing that we, as people, there's a tendency to self-centeredness, right? Self-preservation, uh, to doing the things that we want to do. We're generally more inward-focused than outward-focused, as I certainly learned in my walk with the Lord is that he has helped me reverse that 
so that I'm more outwardly focused. And so by being more outwardly focused, but also accepting who I am and who I was, I realized that in everybody I deal with, they're wrestling with something. And so that's also true for law enforcement. And as a private investigator, you have encountered a lot more of that than I certainly would have. But everybody is dealing with something, whether we know about it or not. And so I, I have a tendency to, to now want to give people more latitude to try to put myself in their position, even if it's in a situation like this that I can at times get very angry that, come on, it's it, to me, you know, and I said, I wrote about this in the book that at some point you have to take a look at a situation. If you've been entrusted with, you've been hired, you're in, in law enforcement to, to do this work then somehow you have to work hard at overcoming whatever the things are that you're going with because everybody um, has issues in their life and they still go to work. They still have to manage their families. But how about putting yourself in the position of the families or the people that you're dealing with and say, if this was my child, what would I want law enforcement to do? And whatever your answer is, do it. Because that's what we expected. We, we expect that law enforcement would take Jen's case seriously as if it were somebody, one of their loved ones. It really made me think of the story of Cain and Abel and that mm -hmm. infamous quote, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yeah. we should be. And he said it derogatorily, right? I mean, it's like he already knew he already knew what he had done. But you're right. I mean, that's what happens here is it's easy to rationalize and say, well, I'm busy. I got 10 cases. That's fine. But then that means that you have to be honest with the families that you're dealing with. And especially in our case, when we're pressing and pushing and doing everything possible, how about just come clean and say, look, we just don't have the resources of the time. Or maybe even as somebody at CrimeCon, some member of law enforcement said that one of the biggest disservices that when, when law enforcement doesn't acknowledge their own lack of resources or time, it deprives families of the opportunity to hire their own people. And unfortunately, I think this is where we, we end up with the two sides of the coin. The family side is they want answers. They'd like to bring their loved one home. They'd like to have them found. The flip side of the coin is from law enforcement's perspective. They want to protect the case from a judicial prosecution perspective. And at times, those are going to be at odds. And we had made it abundantly clear. My brother-in-law couldn't, couldn't have said this probably 100 times or more. That's your job to worry about prosecution. Our job is we want to, we want to get Jennifer. We want to bring her home. We didn't care about the rest of the case, right? Because if we have Jennifer home, that's our answer. You make a very good point that sometimes those things are at odds, but there are different levels of justice. I know when most of us think about that word, especially in the criminal justice context, we think about finding a perpetrator, arresting a perpetrator, putting on a trial and putting them in jail. But like you said, for you, the top priority was finding Jennifer. And then after that, whatever justice would be available, even if the case from a law enforcement perspective would have been compromised because they let you know certain things, I don't think that would have mattered as much to you if you had her to hold in your arms again. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yep. Because then I think that every family that's going through this or something similar would, would, would agree. They would say the same thing. The priority is your loved one not preserving a successful win. So those of us that are kind of on the outside looking in, we're not in this position. Maybe we don't personally know someone in that position, but in our community, something like this has happened. What can we do? Someone that we're not law enforcement, we're not a PI. 
what can we do to make things better for the family or for the case? Well, uh, th- that's a great question. And I think that the best thing that people can do is be present to provide whatever assistance that you can provide. Our natural inclination is to want to say something, right? To speak something. And I, and I won't share, but the, some of the things that were said to Joyce Drew, the family, and I mean, the people meant well, but it was absolutely more harmful because people would say some of the craziest things. And you were like, you know what? It would have been a lot better if you had just physically showed up, which hundreds of people did do, by the way, you know, to just hand out flyers, go, you know, just get the word out there. That's the best thing. That was the thing that was the most encouraging to us. It's not so much that what that people came up to tell us how sorry they were, but that people just came to show up. We had businesses at the mall, Millennia provided lunch. People just did things to just make life a little bit easier as we were trying to navigate through the process. And so be, just being present and, and, and providing whatever things that co- may come to mind that could be helpful, uh, I think would be great. And by the way, I would also say that it doesn't have to be this kind of a case, right? I mean, one of the things I, as I was researching this, realized that because we all do it, there's the tendency to compare. So we look at, may, may look at this situation and say, oh my gosh, I've never encountered something like that. And then somehow we diminish the struggles or the challenges that we're personally facing. And that's not helpful either. So there's, uh, you know, some great work out there on, on something called comparative suffering. And when we do the comparison, what we're really doing is we're dishonoring in, in both ways, right? Because we're diminishing our own situation while also then diminishing potentially how the other person is viewing their own circumstances. So that's why in the beginning of the book, I wanted to make it abundantly clear. So let's just agree as we're going to journey together through the book is we're not going to compare because we all own our own stories. We own our own tragedies, our own circumstances, and people are dealing with all kinds of things, whether it's a child with disabilities or it's work situations. And so it's not even helpful to compare one thing to another. And that's part of the the reason why in the book, I, I also talk about other kinds of cases so that people can see that regardless of the circumstances that we can find ourselves in, what we want to do is find the path forward so that we can be hopeful and then and be able to live a little bit more healthy um, and, and maintain the relationships that we already have in our life. I love that. And I, I want people who might not realize where the case stands right now to uh, kind of be caught up a little bit. So where does Jen's case stand as of right now near the beginning of 2024? Yeah. So December 5th, um, we are a, a year and uh, five days since the case was transferred for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Drew had done a, a masterful job of organizing. We had between lawyers, other law enforcement personnel reviewed 14,000 plus records that they had received from the OPD um, and then basically synthesized that and then provided a summary report of the key things that um, that, that team believed should be addressed. That was given to the FDLA. As of just a couple of weeks ago, they haven't really done anything with it. So it's it's just sad. There was so much anticipation for years that when the FDLE took this case, you know, that th- this was going to be the, the the shift, the change, the new look that was going to make all the difference in the world. And instead, it's it's stalled. It's kind of just languishing there, and um, it's it, again disappointing. Disappointing. Well, I say this, I think, on every case I talk about, somebody somewhere knows what happened, or they at least they suspect it. 
And so if you're listening and you have any idea at all, any information about the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, come forward to law enforcement. Her family needs to know. The community needs to know. Um, and, and what would you, as a family member, say to that person? Yeah, nothing is nothing may be insignificant because you just, like I say, you think about this as a 10,000-piece puzzle. That could be one piece that's missing that could then be a domino effect uh, to other information. And I think, uh, for, from my point of view, I couldn't wait to share this with uh, Joyce and Drew, that being at CrimeCon and seeing how technology advances um, have really given a tremendous amount of uh, hope and boost, specifically in the area of DNA, genetic uh, DNA, forensic DNA. Um, I've met with some folks from some of these companies that are doing amazing work. And what we what we know is that there was DNA found in the car. See, that was, again, one of those things that was uh, originally the family was told that they did not collect DNA or anything of any consequence from Jen's car. And thus, Jen's car uh, was disposed of relatively quickly after they sued and got the records. First thing was that, yes, there was DNA collected. But secondly, there was also photographs on the hood of the car that gave the appearance because of all the construction, there was a lot of dust on the hood. It looked like there was a struggle that took place on the hood of the car. So there was just information that would have been would have been good to have. But it was we were glad that that, that to find that there is DNA. So when I looked at companies like Orthrum um, or I think it was Parabon Nanotechnologies, which when I looked at their websites, I mean to be up, the ability to take um, the DNA and create a three dimensional image of what they believe that person may look like. This this could be huge right now. And so that's really been one of the requests. I have done this through the podcast and interviewing process to say to the FDLE, I know that they've worked with, because I've looked at these these companies' websites. They have engaged these companies. So why not do it with Jen's case? You know, get that DNA to somebody that might be able to help and and, uh, generate that spark. And you never know what genetic genealogy might be able to find as well. So in every case, we need to exhaust every possible avenue. And as we were, as we were saying, when, when you look at this CrimeCon community, I don't think there would be anybody out there, uh, listeners, that would not contribute to a fund that would help cover the cost associated with getting this DNA tested by appropriate labs that can offer the insights or the information or a direction to any of these open cases around the, around the country. And like I said, the love and compassion and the people that I saw at that conference there's no doubt in my mind. That's why I think the ability to harness uh, the, the followers of true crime, your listeners, this is the army that's needed to help families. I could not agree more. And I want everybody to go grab this book. It really is very inspiring, very insightful. I was really moved by it. So thank you for sharing that to help not only your family, but others. And like you said, harnessing that army. So. Yes. If people wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? Yep, they can go to uh, Bill Gilmore, uh, G-I-L-M-O-U-R.com. There's a contact page. Um, they can also just send me an email at bill at billgilmore.com. And they can also just call. Uh, so you can put my cell phone number out there, 407-252-1051. So, I mean, that's that's my mission is to inspire hope and, and any way that I can leverage the circumstances that we have been uh, we have found ourselves in 
um, to help somebody else that may be going through something that they just find overwhelming, I'd be happy to, I would be honored to be able to help someone who may be going through anything that they just feel overwhelmed by. Well, you've certainly inspired me, Bill. And thank you again for sharing your time and sharing your story with us today. Well, thank you, Lori, so much for having me on. The verse that I want us to unpack today is Romans 15, 13, and I'm reading from the NIV. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is always forward focused. That's one reason that I think that it's so important to highlight unsolved cases like Jennifer's. Obviously, we can't go back and change anything that has happened, but we can hold on to the hope that someday soon there will be answers for her family. In the meantime, Bill learned how he could still have joy and peace in this time of hopeful waiting. If someone you know is in a period of hopeful waiting, whether they're waiting for answers or healing or the return of a prodigal child, Please share Bill's story with them so they can be encouraged, like I hope you will be here today. And of course, as always, share this episode with your Florida friends and ask them to share it as well. Because someone out there knows what happened to Jennifer, and it is time for her family to know as well. Let me know what you think about this episode. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.